This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, and the last time what we saw was uh, Hebrews 11. We divided it up into four sermons. It's what's known as the heroes of faith, the faith chapter. It was just such a blessing, such a great part of scripture that we broke it up into four pieces to digest it. Uh, And today we're going to only cover 11 verses this morning in Hebrews 12. It's very powerful. There's a lot to it. I don't want to rush through it. But this morning we're going to look at four sources of encouragement as we run the Christian race, which is really the race of life. As believers, you know, we have a life, a temporal life, but when we're born again, we realize that there's bigger things that are um, set up for us and we're eternal beings. So we're going to look at those four sources of encouragement and understand that this letter was written some 2,000 years ago to a community of Hebrew Christians to encourage them while they were going through trials. You ever read a really old book and you, you, you really try hard to, to let it sink in and you really try to hard to put yourself into that book, but it's just hard. The culture is different. The language is different. Well, that's why the Bible is called the living word because as we go through this, we're going to find that these Hebrew Christians that have long passed and gone to be with the Lord, uh, that what's, what's talked about to them, what's expressed to them, the source of encouragement will encourage us as well 2,000 years later. It's funny, there's some preachers who uh, try so hard to be relevant to the society, but we don't have to try very hard. All we have to do is go to the Scripture because the Scripture is always relevant. It's always applicable. And we're going to see that this morning. So I want you to be encouraged if you're going through difficulty as we read this uh, so that you can be lifted up as well and blessed. So verse 1, it says, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, therefore, remember there was no chapter delineations when the scripture was written. So this is one continuous thought. Now if you remember what we spoke about last Sunday, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, we just spoke about the heroes of faith, men and women who were spiritual giants. They were fallible. They were sinful like you and I. They had their difficulties and their depressions and their their falling downs. But you know what? They were heroes of faith. And we can be like that too. So this great cloud of witnesses... Now, this doesn't mean that they're in some bleachers somewhere, you know, Gideon and and Samson and and Abraham and Sarah, and they're in some bleachers and they're gawking at us, witnesses in that sense. The word is actually martus, which is more applicable to uh, the word martyr, where we get the word martyr from. So basically, they ran the race well. They crossed the finish line. They're having a good old time in heaven with the Lord right now. But they went before us. Now, what he's doing is... The author is comparing the Christian life to a sports event. We think about runners on a track or in a marathon. And we look at that and we can compare it to our lives in a sense. As a matter of fact, before I'm done studying, I always go to my my Greek lexicon. I go to the original language and see what what did I miss here? What can I really pull out the flavor of? I looked at the word race and in Greek the word is agon, where we get the word agony from. So in other words, this race that we're running has uh, elements of effort and anxiety. Amen? Okay, wow, everybody's awake this morning. That's great. So, so to know that these guys and gals went before us 
and they had struggles like you and I, they had difficulties like you and I, is encouraging. So they, therefore, are the first source of encouragement, these heroes of faith. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 9. I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. Some don't agree with me. Uh, But we're going to see that the Apostle Paul did write 1 Corinthians 9. We studied this. And I'm just going to show you a parallel scripture of this whole idea of running a race. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things or exercises self-control. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, the stephanos in the Greek, the, the Greek games, the wreaths that they would wear around their head with the prestige that went along with that. But we believers, brothers and sisters, we run our race, you see this parallel back and forth, for an imperishable crown. The things that God has for us is nothing compared to what we could get on this earth. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. He, he kind of moves from a runner to a pugilist, back to uh, you know, the, the, the point at, at hand, verse 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, or for fear, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he wants to bring his body into subjection, certainly in the spiritual uh, competition, but certainly also to keep our flesh and our, uh, the physical part of us from uh, hurting us in a spiritual sense. And we're going we're gonna to look at some of this. Now, the world, the unsaved world, looks at life like a race too, doesn't, don't they? What does the world say? The blank race. The what? The rat race. You know, get up in the morning, hurry up to get ready, hurry up to go home, hurry up to go to work, hurry up to go Friday night to your friend's house and have a good time, hurry up to get home because you've got to do something Sunday morning, hopefully you go into church. But it's this rat race that the world looks at. However, our race is a much better race than the rat race because in the rat race you do a whole bunch of things and you don't really get anywhere. However, as runners lighten their clothing, they don't eat heavy thick calories before a competition. We also, in a spiritual realm, we strip anything that weights us down, that trips up our feet, that ensnares us, a trap, right? Uh, Or slows us up from winning this race. So in essence, we, believers, currently, we are that second source of encouragement. Now that may sound weird, but understand this, we can be encouraged. Because everyone in this room who's a believer, God has equipped you with the tools to be successful. Right? When we read the scripture, we're warned about messing up because he wants us to be successful. He gives us the tools to be successful. So we can be successful. It's an aberration for believers to go around, listen, we all have our down days, but to go around always complaining, always whining, always seeking attention, that's not going to win anybody to Christ. You know, God calls us to be victors. He calls us to be successful, and we can be. So what would trip us up? Well, maybe the same old sinful habits. You know, when we're born-again believers and we find ourselves getting caught in the same sin, even if nobody else sees it, it's exhausting. It's tiring. Because we're really two different people. 
we are living in a physical body, but we're also spiritual beings. We're eternal beings. So there's this war that goes on inside of us between wanting to do the Lord's work and then sometimes those sins that trip us up weight us down. They, they make us unfruitful. They make us feel unfulfilled. And, and we need to shed those things like a runner would shed the heavy clothing and the training materials and, and the heavy calories so that we could run that race and run like deer. Here's the, the, the understanding. The difference between what I would say is a competitor, which is what we're supposed to be spiritually, and a spectator, which is not something that we're supposed to be. If we find ourselves in the Christian walk, hanging out in the bleachers with our shorts and our, our tank top and a big number on our chest, and we're throwing down chocolate bars and popcorn and sucking on sodas and watching the other Christians run the race, we're in the wrong place. We need to get out of the bleachers. We belong on the track. We don't belong in the rat race. We don't belong in the bleachers. We need to get in the game. Right, coach? Get in the game. Amen? There's no spectators. And listen, if you don't know the Lord and you want to get into the game, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service, as we always do, to come to the Lord and see what it's all about. Verse 2. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we look to these saints that were no better than us, but they prevailed. We look to the possibility or the reality that we can be successful and we can be encouraged by what God is doing through us. But the third and the best source is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see him at the finish line? He's the one with his arms wide open, those wide, arms wide open, and you can still see the nail prints because of, of the love that he has for you and I. He's the one at the finish line cheering you on the loudest. He's the one that has equipped you with the ability to make it and cross that finish line. I want to digress for a minute. When my son was playing basketball and he was in the playoffs, my wife and I were cheering him on and cheering him on, and God bless him. He was running back and forth and back and forth on the court, and you could see he was getting tired. And in one of the games, actually I think two of the games, uh, Pastor Vinny and Maria came and watched them as well. And I thought we were loud. <laughs> you know, between the, the four of us, I thought we were going to get thrown out, but it was all in good fun. So if you're having a sporting event, you definitely want the Whiteheads and the DeProsimos there. But when it comes to your life's event, you want the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the most wonderful, the most powerful, the most loving, the one who's going to give you all the tools to, to break that tape as you cross that finish line. Amen? Okay. So he is the author and finisher of our faith. And that means that, guys, ladies, we're going to have our down points. We're going to have our difficulties. And God knows that. And it's, it's really this, this up and down that sometimes we deal with. But God is going to help us. Okay, so he is the author. He gave us the faith. He gave us a measure of faith. He helps our faith to grow. And he's also the finisher of our faith. He's going to make sure it comes to completion and it comes to maturity. We just have to work with him. He made the track, the runners, the stadium, and the prizes for competing and for winning. Jesus Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why would he go through all that? For the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? John 3.16. 
This was the plan, that Jesus was going to come. He was going to make that way of salvation. He was going to die for my sins and your sins and your sins and everybody's sins in here collectively and the sins of the whole world. So the joy was that he knew that the way of salvation was, was in, in the crosshairs. He also, what was the joy that was set before him? Each individual person. Each individual person in this room, and there's times when I preach and I read the Bible, and you can say it's all about me. There are a few times, and this is one of those times. You are, say it, me. I'm the one. For the joy, I'm the joy that was set before him. I firmly believe that when Jesus was going to the cross, and he had a bloody, a bloody head from the crowns, and he had... Um, uh, eyes that were swollen up because of the beatings and he had spit hanging from him because they were spitting all over him and he was bleeding to death and he was carrying his cross and he was making his way up the hill. He was a man. Do you realize that? He was fully God and fully man. You think it was easy for him to do that? Do you think he used his power supernaturally to just kind of truck, chuck the cross up the hill? No. He had great difficulty. But because of you, because of the joy that was set before him. And he had probably all these names in his mind and in his heart and all the people he was going to save. And that helped him to take another step, another step, another step. Amen? Amen. Despising the shame. What does that mean? Well, I can look at that in two ways. Number one, it wasn't fitting for the God of the universe to go through all that. It was something to be despised. That was for criminals. That was for uh, murderers. That was for insurrectionists. That wasn't for the God of the universe. So the, the shame was despised, but it was also despised in a way that, you know, this is something that I have to do, and this is the, the route that I have to take, and I can't avoid it. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Discouragement is a real threat from Satan. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Why is it in there? Because we can grow weary in doing good. When we're the only one in our household, when we're the only one at our workplace, when we're the only one in our circles, that, that everyone else is not doing the right thing. It gets tiring, doesn't it? Amen? Yeah, you're darn right it gets tiring. So he's saying, just keep going. Just keep doing it. We're not alone. Consider Jesus. The other issue is that, you know, he's, he just got abused from people his whole life. They try to paint him as a sinner, the one without sin. They try to marginalize him, right? They try to make him an outcast, a pariah. And while he was on the cross, it was bad enough that he was bleeding to death. They were insulting him and mocking him and laughing. Can you imagine that scene? What a, what a sick, twisted scene that is. Sometimes as, as Americans, we have this bloodlust too. You know, maybe the things that we watch are not edifying. It, it's not cool to see somebody get killed. It isn't cool to be into that genre. You know, it's not a good thing. Human life is precious, especially the one who came to save us. What does Romans 3 tells us? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who, who does good, right? Their, their throat is an open tomb. And, and Jesus came into this world to take this first step of reconciliation. And even after he died for the sins of the world, they still, eh, we don't care. It's not important to us. 
So consider that when we go through difficulties as believers. Consider Jesus as our example. Verse 4, you have not resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. None of us have ever taken the Calvary road in the literal sense. Jesus had skin in the game. You've heard that expression? Jesus also had blood in the game. He gave his blood. So even the most difficult things that we go through, Jesus as a man went through far worse. Now, I want to just, before we move on to the next few verses, let's just talk a little bit too about this race, this competition. Some of us right here in this room are getting jazzed up. Some of you guys, maybe you've run the Boston Marathon or have been track stars or have competed in some way. Maybe some of you are doing it now. But listen, there's some Sundays I talk to my educated crowd. There's some Sundays I talk to my crowd that are into different things. For those of us that are involved in any physical competition, you know what? I still enjoy it at 46. I think it's a lot of fun. If somebody challenges me to something, if I think I might be able to do it, I might jump in. I might train for it. I still try to train and keep healthy and fit. But let's not take it too far. I've got to be honest with you. If, if it's between coming and putting a sermon together because I'm, I'm behind or going to the gym, the gym's going to suffer. And sometimes it shows. Okay? <laughs> but the bottom line is physically... Okay, these bodies break down. They wear out. The joints wear out. The tendons wear out. We start to pull stuff. We have to warm up longer than, than we should. Okay, so whether it's sports or weight training or crossfitting or tough muttering, whatever you're doing, let's not be embarrassed to put so much into that and really be lacking in our physical training. That's just the word. Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which, speak, which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now the author of Hebrews is broaching the fourth subject that, that I'm picking out today, or the fourth source of encouragement, and that's discipline. Now, some of you are saying, what? How is that? I got the first three, Pastor, but the fourth one, I'm not with you on that one. I'm going to try to build a case here, build an investigation, and hopefully by the end, you'll see it the way I'm seeing it, and certainly the way the author is presenting it. Discipline. Yes, it involves punishment. However, if you look at the synonyms in the dictionary, it has a wide semantic range. It can be punishment. It can be training, education, tutoring, correction, certainly improvement. God's discipline is there to improve our lives. Now the author of Hebrews is going to make a case of why it's something positive. Now just to kind of soften us up a little bit before we talk into the heavy discussion of discipline, I kind of want to give you a little illustration that might help out a little bit. So you got this young couple, right, and they're raising two boys, two baby boys, and they decide they're going to raise them in the non-traditional way. They're not going to discipline them at all. They're going to be their friends. Maybe you know some people who do this. Uh, hopefully after hearing this, they, you might not. But the boys grow up to be 8 and 10. And they are just in trouble everywhere. They're in trouble with the neighbors. They're in trouble with the law. Whether they deserve it or they're not, they're always getting blamed for what's going on in the neighborhood. So the, the parents realize we have a problem here. We have to do something about this. So they find out about this pastor who's an authoritative figure, and he's good with young people. 
So the plan is they're going to send the young boy, the eight-year-old, to him in the morning, and they're going to send the 10-year-old to him in the afternoon. <laughs> and the eight-year-old sits in front of the pastor, it's just the two of them, and the pastor thinking, you know, I've got to start off somewhere. What, what's his relationship with the Lord, he's thinking. So he says to the boy, where is God? And the boy looks at him, he's put off by that question. He doesn't get that at all. So he clams up. So the pastor thinks he's getting stonewalled, so he raises his voice a few octaves and he says, Son, where is God? Now the boy's freaking out because he's raising his voice and he's really clamming up. pastor's getting irritated because obviously it's not starting out well. And he says, Son, where is God? And the boy shrieks. He jumps up. He runs out of the church, runs all the way home, runs into the house, slams the door behind him, runs up into the bedroom, past his older brother, jumps into the closet and closes the door and sits in a pile of clothes. So his brother's thinking, what the heck is going on? What, what happened over there? So he, he opens up the closet door and he says to his brother, he goes, what's gotten into you? He goes, we're in big trouble now. God is missing and they think we had something to do with it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Discipline is good. Now I can close the book and, no, I'll finish, finish the scripture. <laughs> so we move from this parable. Parable is a uh, physical illustration or temporal illustration of a spiritual truth. So we look at the parable of the runner, and now we're looking really at the parable of a father disciplining his children. And this is really exhortational. We should be excited about this. Um, he does quote in, in the study Bible, it's italicized, Proverbs 3, in the first few verses, uh, when we look at 5 and 6, and also the latter part of it is rep repeated in Revelation 3.19. But two things to keep in mind. Number one, that we don't despise chastening, and that we're not discouraged by the Lord's rebuke. And that's easier said than done sometimes. But here's the reason. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And this is one of those difficult portions of Scripture. But at Calvary Chapel, we covered the whole Bible, not just our favorite parts. He scourges every son and daughter whom he receives. Now, so we say discipline, the Lord's discipline equals love. Sometimes when we're going through real difficulties, we are tempted to look up and say, Lord, don't love me so much. In the flesh, it may not feel like God loves us because we're emotional beings, but the truth is the opposite. He does love us. Two caveats to this, and then we'll move on, is number one, is the trial you're going through discipline or is it something else? I'm going to make a good case for that. We're going to look at four instances. The second thing is if you've grown up in a household of severe abuse, physical or otherwise, and the person, your caregiver, called it discipline, that is not what we're speaking about. Okay, uh, Discipline is very... Clearly established in the scripture, it's not to injure or destroy, it's to bring about change. So verse 7, he says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, all believers have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In the King James, it's a little bit more powerful. It says that you are bastards and not sons. Now today that word is used as a curse, but it had a legitimate application when the King James was written. 
So this is powerful. Let's look at the physical realm. The devil is in the extremes. And when we have children, we need to fall into the, the margin of proper parenting. And of course, that we would find in the scripture. We did talk about abuse. And then the other extreme is, I remember a family, young family, who was raising their children. Not only did they not discipline their kids, but they told us that they never even tell their son, no, they don't want to hurt his fragile ego. I didn't say this, but I thought, you better hope the rapture comes before he becomes a teenager. <laughs> the root of discipline is love. It's not a desire to harm or to destroy, but again, to bring about change. Now let's go to the spiritual realm. It is assumed that if we are gods, we will be chastened by the Lord. And the corollary to that in the scripture is that he doesn't discipline those who are not his. Now, people who are unbelievers or not his will still deal with the perils of life. It doesn't mean they go through life scot-free. However, if you're on the wrong course and you're on the wide path, it actually is better to go through a difficulty to bring you to the point where you actually look up and wonder where God is. Because otherwise you follow that wide road that Jesus spoke about that leads to destruction. Now, I've disciplined my son for many years, but I haven't disciplined anybody else's sons. I might have liked to, but I didn't. I also don't want to get arrested. Uh, <laughs> why? Because they're not my children. I may love them, but they're not my children. It's not my responsibility. Consider this. Every guy who works on a car in a garage is not a mechanic, and every Christian who calls themselves a Christian and comes to church is not necessarily a Christian. The person who calls themselves a Christian and mocks God with their behavior may not be his. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, don't we sometimes envy another believer who seems to have it all and they never have any problems? They may seem to get away with everything. They may seem to be successful, but they may end up being a tear. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? The wheat and the tares grow together. They look very similar. It isn't until harvest time are they separated. One is burned and the other one produces a beautiful crop. Tares grow in proximity to the wheat, but the end will reveal something quite differently and that should be sobering to all of us. The fact that God does not allow us to get away with everything means he loves us. And if we're going through a trial, these are the one of the things that we should consider. Is the Lord chastening me? Because he wants us to be a better person. Because he knows he can count on you. He knows he can count on me. He knows that if he brings about change, that we will be one of the few that he can use to glorify his name. So we have to look at that. That's an honor by the Lord. The spoiled brat who calls themselves a Christian, and you might be envying, may never experiencing the joy of being used by God because they resisted at every turn. So keep that in mind. Verse 9. Furthermore, he said, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So this last comparison is... You know, I had a, a father and a stepfather, and they both disciplined me. <laughs> so I, I got it twice. Uh, but the bottom line is I respected 
my parents, you know, when I was disciplined, they were my parents, so I respected them. So what he's saying here, all the more, when the Lord deals with us, he's a much better parent and he's pure. Now, dads don't always get discipline right, you know. I don't always get it right. Uh, maybe for one reason or another, I discipline and I've been wrong. I've been off. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. However, God is a perfect parent. So the two things that we can benefit, well, listen, from earthly parents, it's corrective behavior. But from God, he says two things here. Number one, we get to live. We get to have eternal life. And we get to have abundant life while we're here. The second thing we're blessed with is that we become partakers of God's holiness. I remember preaching a sermon about what's so scary about holiness. Because people hear that word and they panic. What does that mean? What does that have to, you know, go somewhere and be quiet and be poor and no that's not what it means holiness just means to look more like god's son jesus and look less like the world so to be partakers of god's holiness is a good thing it's a blessing right it it makes us successful verse 11 the last verse for this morning he says now no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present but grievous I love the honesty of the scripture. Who says, hey, I'm being disciplined. Right on. Give me some more. This is wonderful. You know? But it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, I'm going to be the one that always prays for blessing. Trust me. I don't pray to the Lord for discipline. He just gives that when he feels that I need it. But I don't ask for it. I'm the one who... You know, in my prayer life, ask for the blessing, and I'm sure you're very much like me. But it produces a harvest, this discipline. Peaceableness and righteousness, only to those who are trained by it. Now, that word, trained, in the Greek, gives us the same word as gymnasium. Literally, to be trained by it. You know, when we, when we want to be a Marine, let's say, I want to be the few, the proud. You know, I'm going to go to boot camp. And the drill instructor looks you up and he's got that campaign hat and he's, you've got big shoulders and that booming voice and that short haircut and he looks you up and down and he says, you look like dough, you're doughy. You look like a couch potato. Boy, I need to get you whipped into shape. Why? Because you need to be a soldier. They can't put a bunch of doughy, sloppy people on the battlefield. Okay, they've got to whip you into shape. That's how you become trained. Now, in the spiritual sense, When we come before God, we may be spiritual couch potatoes. And God's like, I can't use you like this. I've got to put a little tone in that that spiritual muscle. I've got to get a little focus, a little attention, a little training. You have to understand how we do things around here. So when we, we, we get to be blessed when we're trained by that discipline. God doesn't want to destroy us. The enemy does. He wants to produce something in us. And if he is training us, he knows he can count on us. So we should take that as a compliment. So let's go back to this uh, idea of where the source of this trial comes from. Because so, I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, I'm going through a trial, it must be God's disciplining me. There's basically four things that we can look at why we may be going through a trial. The first one is the effects of our sin. So, you know, we can go through life and we can sin, and there's effects of those sins. Things happen to us. As a matter of fact, as we've been going through First and Second Samuel, we've been talking about David, King David. He was forgiven for his adultery and then subsequent murder. 
However, David experienced the trials and the difficulties of forgiven sin. When God looked at him, he was like, that's my boy, I love him. He's a man after my own heart. He was forgiven, but his life was very difficult because of his own sin. Sometimes it's God's going up there saying, I didn't do it. The devil's saying, I didn't do it. We did it ourselves. So keep that in mind. It could be a result of our own sin, the consequences or the ramifications. Number two, we may be going through a trial because of someone else's sin against us. If you've been ripped off and you're really struggling financially because you trusted someone, it may not be that you're being disciplined. It may be because somebody else is a sinner and they deceived you and they took your money and you're going through this. So there's number two. Number three, the result of entropy or the fact that we live in a fallen world. As we get older, we may develop diseases. We may have problems with our joints and our eyesights. We may go through... um, cancers and such and it may not be a, a, a discipline factor at all it may just be the result of the world we live in and the fact that we have a limited lifespan as the result of the curse of sin on this earth and then four spiritual discipline and I think sometimes it's not easy to tell but if you get with somebody who really knows the word and you discuss it you might be able to find out the source of the trial that you're dealing with So, let me just read one more or two more scriptures and then we'll pretty much wrap it up here. Uh, In Proverbs 9, 7 through 9, it says this. He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself. You ever try to, to correct somebody who's a fool? You know, they're just that type of person. What are you going to get? You're going to get abuse. It's not going to go well. He who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. However, rebuke a wise man. You ever rebuke somebody who's really a godly person and they immediately realize what they did wrong and they try to change? That's a blessing. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Shallow people don't want to be corrected. And I have to say, in our society, we're we're getting to really a bad place in general, from the top all the way down to the foot soldiers. We live in a society where it's not my fault. We're always blaming somebody else. It was either my parents that raised me, or the government, or my teachers didn't teach me right, or the police was picking on me, or the, you know, whatever the case may be, right? We want to blame somebody else, blame shift. We have a problem taking personal responsibility. However, the Bible says that the smart, the successful person, the wise person will receive that input, pray about it, and see where they can make the applicable changes. I look at it this way. If, if I'm going through something, I, I go right to discipline. I just do. In my mind, I'm thinking, you have my undivided attention. I'd like to be on the accelerated program. What do you want to show me so I can move past this? You know, I'm smart. Seriously, I want to know, what did I do wrong? What can I, how can I fix this? How can I go through it and see the light at the other side? You know what I'm saying? What's God trying to show me? Another scripture, 1 Corinthians 11:27. Now, the Corinthian church was a church where all kinds of bad stuff was happening, and the Lord really had to step in. Any sin you can imagine, they were committing it, and it was just it didn't look any, any different from the world. It was so bad that even during communion, during the Lord's Supper, uh, there was some pretty awful things going on. So 
This is the context. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died in this church untimely because of their their heresy and their blasphemy. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That's the point I was making. If we would look inside, examine ourselves, say, "What, what am I doing? What can I learn from this? then the Lord doesn't have to deal with us. We corrected the problem. When your kid's doing something wrong and they realize it and they immediately correct the problem, I don't know about you, but to me, I think that's a great learning uh, experience and I'm, I'm inclined to just say, okay, fine, you know, thank you. you know, I appreciate that. And it's the same with us and the Lord. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to be condemned with the world, and I don't want to see anybody here condemned with the world. And why does God do this? Sometimes he'll take us out of the picture. He's taking people out of the picture because he doesn't want them to be condemned with the world. That's serious business. So I would just say this. How is this encouraging? I would, I would say this, that when I look at the situation in my own life from personal experience, I know that God wants me to be a better Christian, a better husband, a better father, a better friend, and a better pastor. So to me, that's encouraging. He wants to improve on the model because this model, believe me, is not done being improved. <laughs> so you didn't have to laugh out that loudly about that. <laughs> and sadly, I've seen many in ministry that have shunned that discipline and have fallen into some pretty grievous sins because they weren't looking at the warning signs and they're no longer in ministry. So that's the sobering portion of that. So when God disciplines us, he wants us to be improved. That's the bottom line. So for the Hebrew Christians, these were four sources of encouragement in only 11 verses. And I suspect that this morning that many of you are also blessed by those four sources of encouragement. And I pray that they minister to you as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. We thank you for the uplifting, Lord, and we also thank you for the convicting.